hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks segment. We are somersaulting right into today's episode. We have two awesome writers who are joining us to have Carly and Cece discuss their work with them. Our first author is Kathy, who's going to start us off by reading us her query letter. Thank you. Dear Carly, as a longtime Twitter follower, I'm enjoying your lively and insightful podcast with Bianca and Cece. Thank you for supporting emerging writers. With your interest in unique memoirs and books like Do No Harm, we may be a good fit. Unacceptable Risk, a memoir of marriage and tainted blood, is an 80,000-word transformational memoir that combines the exterior story of the CBC Sundance miniseries, Unspeakable, the protagonist arc of Nora McInerney's No Happy Endings, and the ethical issues of the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks. When my love interest Dave limped into my apartment carrying a vial of a blood product medication and a syringe, 
I unwittingly pushed poison into his veins. An HIV diagnosis followed. As a young photojournalist, I'd just taken a newspaper job in a new city, ready to shed the secrets and shame of growing up in a family shattered by substance abuse and to begin anew. With a witty and interesting boy next door, I was excited about the future. Suddenly, I feared for his life and mine as we joined the burgeoning sphere of the early AIDS pandemic. Still, we married, and with the guidance of Dave's trusted hemophilia doctor, I took a calculated risk to have his children, all while keeping HIV a secret. But the burdens of secrecy and our misguided coping skills almost destroyed our marriage. Then, just as our marriage survived and even thrived, another virus laced in Dave's medicine, hepatitis C, destroyed his liver. In my grief, I learned the horrific details of how four pharmaceutical companies sold tainted blood products for decades, killing Dave and tens of thousands of hemophiliacs, along with wives, girlfriends, and children. Worst of all, the man that we had most trusted had betrayed us. I believed shedding my secret of Dave's illnesses and exposing the story with my photography would set me free, but it would take more than that to come out of hiding and live a truly authentic life. As a photojournalist, I worked for the Nashville Telegraph in New Hampshire and the Boston Globe. In 2004, I published Dying in Vain, Blood Deception Justice, my photographic documentary on the topic, which led to profiles in the RIT College Magazine, New England Cable News, Art and Understanding Magazine, and radio stations across the country. The Boston Globe published my related editorial on its op-ed page. With today's general distrust in big pharma and the current opioid crisis, my story will resonate with readers and provide hope for overcoming adversity. Currently, the director of the National AIDS Memorial has said, we'd be honored to help promote your book. One national hemophilia organization has already published an article on my current work in progress, and I have support from other hemophilia organizations in the U.S. and Britain. Thank you for reading my partial. If my work intrigues you, I'm happy to take next steps. And as a mom of two boys, your occasional treats bring me down memory lane. Kind regards, Kathy. Wonderful, Kathy. Thank you so much. Let's move across to Kali. Kali, what was your take on that query letter? All right. I'm just going to start at the top. So actually, maybe I'll start with why I picked you for the podcast. I think that's always a nice way to start. I wanted to choose you for the podcast for a couple reasons. I think this is such a great example of when we talk about memoirs that need to be written, memoirs that need to be told, memoirs that can you know change the life of many people. I think this checks all the boxes because we see a lot of quote unquote quiet memoirs about kind of internal life. And I think this has such an external story that obviously can change the lives of others. So that's one of the reasons I want to have you the podcast. The second is, you know, I want to use our podcast to kind of help spread the word here, right? I think we, we have a platform and I really wanted to make sure that we used our platform to spread the word and help you spread the word as well. So thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Okay, so from the top of the query letter itself here. So you mentioned Do No Harm, which is for anybody that doesn't know, that's one of the books that I worked on, Christina McDonald's novel. It's a thriller, so it doesn't really match the category per se or genre that you're writing in, but it is a, as Kathy knows, it's a medical themed thriller. And so that's why Kathy chose that for the comp. So obviously, because that's for me, that makes sense. But obviously, you know, you would tweak that for any other agents that you were submitting to. Okay, so now we're getting into the comps here. I felt like the extra wording around the comps we don't need. You had like the exterior story of blank, protagonist arc of blank, ethical issues of blank. You know, we don't need any of that because I think the framing of the comps plus the work that you're doing in the query, I think that those words are doing a lot in these extra words. I just think they distract us from the actual comps themselves. I don't think you need three comps here personally. I think Immortal Life is a great comp. 
And then I think Unspeakable is a great comp. And I would just say, you know, Unspeakable, you know, the tainted blood scandal doc. Just keep it light. Just give us a little frame of reference for anybody that doesn't know the doc and then just kind of move on. So any of that exterior story, protagonist arc stuff, we don't need any of that. And now we're getting into the body paragraphs here. So we have my love interest, Dave, limped into my apartment, carrying a vial of a blood product, medication, and syringe. I felt like this sounded slightly technical. If there was a way to make that blood product medication somehow sound less technical, I don't, again, I don't know if there's a way. It just felt a little bit technical for me. And I think what what really makes the story sing is the emotionality to it. And so there's that balancing of the medical stuff with the emotion. And if we could just, I don't know, somehow round that out to sound a little less technical, I think that would help us just focus on the story itself. The other major thing I think you need to do here is, okay, so this paragraph kind of has three chunks to it. So we have that, you know, using the medication, him having the diagnosis. And then the next section is as a young photojournalist, that's the next section. And then the last section is suddenly I feared for his life. So I would flip the suddenly and the young photojournalist sections, because what happens is, you know, we start with him and then we flip to you and then we flip back to him. And I just think there's such a balance here of this being your memoir, right? Like your family story, but you're also telling his story. And so I just felt like inserting yourself there wasn't necessary. So I would just continue with the flow of him and then add your, as a young photojournalist at the bottom there to keep the focus on him. Because I think this is probably a balance you're going to struggle with throughout the whole course of the memoir is where do you insert yourself? You know, how do you tell his story and how do you spread the message, right? And so I would just, whenever possible, focus on the storytelling as opposed to inserting yourself into the story and use your frame you know, as the narrator to do that job, if that makes sense. Okay, and then the next body paragraph. So two things in this paragraph. So you have, worst of all, the man we trusted most betrayed us. I'm assuming this is one of your doctors. So maybe I would just say, you know, the doctor we trusted. If it's not, maybe it's a surprise twist. I don't know. But the man just sounded a little bit vague to me. So if we could just name the man, unless it's a secret twist in the book, I would name the man. The other thing is you have at the end here, I believe shedding my secret of Dave's illnesses and exposing the story with my photography would set me free. One thing I wasn't clear on is, are you actually planning on having photo sections in the book? If so, we need to know that because that is related to comps and how much the book would cost to make and things like that, that affect our pitching of the book. So if you are planning on having photos, again, it just changes the framework a little bit of the cost to make the novel. And so when we're pitching something and we talk about P&Ls and publishers in order to make an offer, have to do a P&L, they need to know if they need to account for photography costs and things like that in special paper. So, you know, I, I think adding photos is lovely. Just like one of those kind of middle sections in the book, you know, the photos you flip through. If that is what you imagined, great. If it's not what you imagined, then I wouldn't really talk about the photography other than you being a photojournalist and using photos in other ways. It could be that you're writing op-eds and things like that, or you're, you know, you're writing essays to promote the book and you use your photojournalism there. Totally fine. So I think it's just being really clear about how you imagine the book format-wise and visually. So just let us know photography. And then the last thing is you have would set me free. And again, framing this around around you versus him versus, you know, when a book becomes a book, you know, when it's published on the shelves, it doesn't really belong to you anymore, right? It's like you giving this gift to other people. And so I don't think public, like writing the book is for you, right? Writing the book helps set you free. But publishing the book isn't really what I don't think is what sets you free, right? I think you need to frame it as why do other people need this book? Why does this book need to be out there? And so try to frame it as 
how you're going to help other people. Because with nonfiction, it's, that's really, really important, right? Because you're asking somebody to spend a hardcover, maybe it's like $30. Asking somebody to spend $30, it's not about what sets you free, right? It's like, what, what, why are they going to spend 30 bucks? So that's just, I would just change that framing a little bit. But it's all there. You have an extremely emotional story that needs to be told. And it seems like so far you're writing it beautifully. So I think that's good. And then the author bio, a bit long. I think you can tighten it. I, I don't have specific ideas where necessarily other than maybe cutting you know, all the Boston Globe stuff is great because that's of national attention. You might want to take out stuff that's a bit less national. That would probably be my suggestion because if you're trying to kind of pitch yourself as here's my network, here's my platform, I would focus on those national connections as opposed to those regional connections. But all in all, I'm sorry this happened to you. It sounds extremely tragic and I'm glad you had your beautiful years together that you did because it's a tragic story and we're so glad that, that you're able to tell it and share it with us. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. All right, Kathy, we're handing over to you. Do you have specific questions about that for Carly? Or perhaps you want to discuss a spoiler in terms of the man? Sure, I can. Yeah, I'll, I'll discuss the spoiler first and maybe just to give a little bit of framework for the book. So the issue of what happened has many layers, including pharmaceutical companies, blood banks, the FDA, even the National Hemophilia Foundation and some doctors. Now, I use the doctor. My husband's doctor was very tied into the pharmaceutical companies and made some, in my opinion, poor decisions. So I'm kind of using him. So the medical story is sort of the roadmap for my personal story, as well as the doctor is sort of the face of the medical story. So that's just kind of, you know, how I'm trying to frame this and in a compelling way, trying. And I do have a specific question. I feel like I did not boil the hook down to one compelling sentence. And so I'm just curious as to your take on that. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think it comes back to the whole, you know, for anybody that was at our retreat on the weekend. Kathy, you were at the retreat, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. I remember seeing your face. So anybody that was at the retreat this weekend, we really focused on hook, 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 right? Like we probably couldn't have hit it over everybody's head hard enough. And so that's why Kathy's asking this question. And for me, it comes down to two things. Did the query letter do the job of selling the book? That's the first thing. As an agent, that's what I want to know. And part of my job sometimes is helping come up with the hook. And so I feel like at this point, your query did the job of hooking me, right? This is a complex story. The fact that you maybe didn't boil down your hook enough, I think everybody can always do better, right? Like none of us are copywriters. I mean, unless you are a copywriter, but most of us aren't copywriters. And so I'm so glad you're interrogating this because that's obviously something that can really elevate your work. But I feel like the query did its job well enough to probably get requests. So we can all do work, as I said, on our hooks. You know, whenever I write a pitch letter to editors, you know, it's really interesting actually how a query letter can evolve into an agent's pitch letter, which can evolve into editorial copy for sales teams, which then can evolve into back cover copy. It's so interesting to me, the trajectory of that. And it really does start with query letters sometimes, right? Because as we say, you are the driving force behind your work. You are the first person to be passionate about this project and you share that passion with me. And then that's the evolution of that. And so I think you did a good enough job. Do I think this is perfect? No, right? But I don't demand perfection of anybody, especially in query letters. We're all just doing our best job to get attention. So yes, I think you could probably do better, but I don't think you did a quote unquote bad job. Okay. Cece, you're the hook queen. Do you have any advice to add there? 
I wanted to ask Kathy, what do you think is the hook of this? And if you don't want to answer, that's okay. I can just tell you. Yeah, what I I, think. that is certainly what I what I've been struggling with. You know, I'm, I've been kind of in my mind playing with a little metaphor about the book in that, you know, being a photographer, there's sort of this thought of the latent image, you know, photography, you take a picture and then the image appears later. And it's sort of what happened in the whole medical narrative. Oh, there was all this stuff going on that was to be seen later. But I know that that, has, that would have to tie into my personal change or, you know, what I'm exposing to the reader. So, or how I'm helping the reader. Yeah. So because it's nonfiction, really, it's about like, what are you delivering to the reader? And I think you're delivering yeah. a David and Goliath type of story yeah. where it's like this family got swamped by medical misinformation or, you know, doctors that didn't treat you right. And so when I think of a hook, I try to look at your query and figure out where it's all hidden. And in the bottom, you say, with today's general distrust of big pharma and the current opioid crisis, my story will resonate with readers and provide hope for overcoming adversity. And I think it's woven through this medical lens is that, again, it's like a David and Goliath type of story, I think. Cece, what do you think? No, I agree. And I, you know, I, I will say that with nonfiction, particularly memoir, hooks are something we dig to find as opposed to we create because the story happened. Like it's about the framing and the positioning. So it's quite normal for us to be at this stage talking about this and not have the hook be totally figured out. It's totally fine. It's not a problem. I think there might be something in the, and I hope this won't come across as gratuitous. It, it might, it's not my intention, but I, I wonder if there's something in the whole, like you were the unwitting hit woman of Big Pharma. Your hands killed him and your brains is going to save him or not save him because that's not possible. We can't resurrect someone, but redeem yourself, save his narrative, save his story. I wonder if there's something there. I would have to dig mm -hmm. and tweak. And I, I think it's already layered in there, right? And part of our job is to kind of pluck all that out. And I think Cece's right. Like you are the protagonist as well as the narrator of this story. You're the protagonist only because you lived. Mm -hmm. And so there's a pressure there to kind of deliver the story through that lens. Okay, thank you. Right. So Kathy, will you give the listeners an understanding of what's in those opening pages before we hear Carly discuss them? The story begins with me returning to my empty home after leaving the hospital where my young husband, Dave, has just died of liver failure, and that my next step is to climb the hill to a neighbor's house and tell our young sons they'd never see their father again. In doing so, I sprinkle in some details of my husband's personality. I reveal that I was aware he'd likely die young because the blood product he used to treat his hemophilia had infected him with HIV and hepatitis C. Next, I tell the reader that I was a photojournalist, and had I known that Dave's death was a result of a preventable medical tragedy, I would have photographed his final days. But at the time of Dave's diagnosis in 1986, his doctor, a prominent hematologist, had led us to believe that it was just an unfortunate accident that HIV and hepatitis had infiltrated the nation's blood supply. I then project that I'd soon learn that Dave and tens of thousands of other hemophiliacs really died of corporate greed and bureaucratic failures. This would transform me into an advocate using my photography to expose the truth, all while believing the process of shedding the secrets that we'd kept about Dave's illness would heal me, but that would not be enough. In a later scene, I'm driving back to the hospital and I called the nurse of the prominent hematologist, hoping she knows of some miracle cure for liver failure. When she doesn't answer, I leave a voicemail pleading for help, and oddly, she never returns my call. Back at the hospital, I walk the reader through Dave's final hours with me by his side. Wonderful, Kathy. Thank you. Carly? Okay, first thing I want to say is that middle section of what you just said, that's the hook. <laughs> so whatever that middle section of what you just said, that's the hook. So drill that down. 
Okay, now to our pages. I think it's incredibly, incredibly emotional and passionate. And there's just so many layers to this. So I really like the first two paragraphs for our opening page. I think that's great. But then I think we dip into the slightly technical again. And I would really encourage you to focus these opening pages on the storytelling, on the emotionality. Like when you're telling the story of people writing his obituary and all the wonderful things you say about him, and then you go to the hospital and then you relive his dying moments of like, you say, Dave closed his eyes for a few seconds and then fixed his eyes on mine. You're going to be okay. He said, you'll find someone else to make you happy. But I want you, I said. And I'm like, I'm like ready to ball. Like this is just, you know, our opening few pages. And so I think you're at your best here gripping us when you are in story. And so I would just try to find a way to just be less technical. Or if you want to get into the technicality, you, for example, I'll just tell you the part I'm thinking of. So Dave had contracted HIV, the virus that caused AIDS, and an alphabet of hepatitis viruses from the blood plasma product called Factor A concentrate. So, you know, you're just, you're getting to this really technical language, which I think you're obviously just trying to frame this for the reader and you know, for the listener here, but that's not really what's going to keep us turning the page. And mm. so I think that that part just needs to just be woven in a little bit later. But as I said, you're at your best here when you're in story. And I just, I do have a lesson for everybody here, which is Kathy left her track changes on so I could oh, see I some changes that she made. So I'll just encourage everybody listening before you send it to a professional to make sure that you, you turn your track changes off. So there's a a learning moment for everybody. But Kathy, I mean, this is really, really well done. I would just slip the technical out and just tuck it in later when it's necessary and, and keep us in, in story. And yeah. you did you did really great work here. Wonderful. Cece, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Only that you're so obviously a journalist. <laughs> and that is a wonderful thing, a wonderful skill. It can be a huge asset. Like I'm sure you're great with deadlines. And it's just about putting on a different hat. Yeah, thank you. Do you have questions, Kathy? Well, one main question I understand now from feedback, wonderful feedback, that the story, Carly, what you just said, I'm at my best when I'm in the scene and I've received that feedback from other folks as well. And so I know that if I keep the first pages as the night that Dave died, or those days, final days of his life, if I keep those that I would need to just stay within the story and whittle down the technical and the journalistic style. Is that, do you think that that could still be an appropriate place to start with that night? Yeah, I think this is a really, really great start. Okay. And sometimes I feel like you did something really well here, which not everybody does really well, is that sometimes when you start with such an emotional moment, such as like the end of his life, what happens is, I say this all the time on the podcast, is I don't have emotional investment. But somehow you just, you defied all of that because number one, it's a true story. And I think that is, you know, great. But I also think, as I said, you did a wonderful job with layering what other people thought about him and you know as a teacher and you know he was he's had a line about like he's a teacher at work he's a teacher on the bar stool you know he's a teacher wherever he is or whatever that line was it was so beautiful and so you provided such context and such richness that I was ready to cry by page five right and so there's a saying in publishing called if you cry you buy <laughs> so as an agent you know if you cry you got to sign the manuscript if an editor cries you got to buy the book there's that saying and so I think that you're tapping into that you really did start it in the right place it's just I kind of see it again I I haven't read the whole thing and I haven't seen your full synopsis, so I don't know where this is going. But as I said, I think this is this David and Goliath story. And I know you're going to get into so much, you know, big pharma stuff. But starting us in story is always the place to start because these are real people <laughs> that went through this. You're not doing this expose as a journalist. You're like, this 
this is this came from my life. And so starting it in a place of life and death, I think you started in the right place. And I assume, you know, by chapter two or three, we're going to be getting into tackling big pharma. And so I kind of see this as two battles, like you're going to have your story arc of your family, and then you're going to have your story arc of tackling big pharma. And so I think those are our two simultaneous arcs we're going to follow. I don't agree. I don't think this is starting in the right place. I think that we should start with the whole Dave thought I was fearless and, you know, and he was grateful for that. And so it was no problem when I had to give him the shot or whatever it's called. I'm terrified of needles. So to me, it's very (laughs) impressive that you can be around. Like, seriously, I'm terrified of needles. And I don't think we're starting in the right place. I think it's too telling. And I think it's such a big emotional moment. I wanted I wanted the the earning of it. I wanted the wave to be built before the wave came crashing down, which not, which didn't which is I agree with Carly like you did a great job of putting it there. It's just that I wanted the wave. But I think that this is just one of those cases where the story could begin in more than one place, you know? And also like taste. I have a much darker taste than Carly does, right? So it's probably just the reader. It could be a number of things, right? And I think we're also, Cece and I are both projecting on you, Kathy, like what this book is. You know your book better than anybody else. Like Cece and I haven't read it. We're just going based on our gut instincts. That's um, true. I am definitely so I projecting. You, I think... <laughs> But as an agent, we get to help shape projects. So you're kind of seeing into both of our brains about like how we envision a project. We see a query, we read literally a query letter in five pages. And then Cece and I just start to send our brain off into wild directions. And so I think you're just seeing our agent brains at work. Okay. And one of the really great things about working with an agent is that you get to do that. But you also, we always tell our clients, like, it's your story. You come along for the ride and in our brains and it's fun and the exchange is helpful, but it's your story. You're the one who knows. So absolutely. I was just going to say before we end, if it's ready to go, I'd love to see it. So, you know, whenever you feel like turn your track changes off (laughs) and then I'll look at it. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining us, Kathy. All right. So that was it from Kathy. Now we move on to Leela. Welcome to the show, Leela. Let's hear your query letter. Thank you for having me. So dear Cecilia Lira, I am a big fan of the Books with Hooks segment on the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast. Your feedback has brought new insight in making sure tension is present from page one and hinting toward the climax in the query. I know you're interested in dark stories with dysfunctional families and characters that make bad decisions. I hope you'll consider, title redacted, my 91,000 adult upmarket novel that may appeal to fans of My Dark Vanessa by Kate Elizabeth Russell and The Comeback by Ella Berman. Navigating Hollywood is tough, especially at 15 years old. Natalie Rhodes has always wanted people to take her seriously. From the kids at her school who she never connected with, to her dad who gave up the role of dad before her age reached double digits. But her momager Dana believes Natalie is mature beyond her years and can make it big as an actress, so they head to Los Angeles. A string of failed auditions rattles Natalie. Maybe it's her biracial background making her not black enough for some roles nor white enough for others, or perhaps it's her age counting her out before she has a chance to prove herself. When Dana informs her that she sold their Florida home and is investing the remaining money into Natalie's career, she recognizes failure isn't an option. She decides to attend an industry party where she meets a successful writer and producer, Kit Lawson. Kit's mentorship ropes Natalie in when she needs guidance the most, but it's the way he treats her like an adult and someone worthy of respect that becomes addicting. His vision for her career differs greatly from Dana's, and when Kit and Natalie's relationship turns sexual, she struggles deducing whose vision is best and to whom her loyalty lies, including her own. As success grows, so does Natalie's worries about her image. Siding with Kit can brand her an ungrateful daughter, aligning with Dana 
that can ice her out with a prominent man in the industry. But choosing wrong can squash Natalie's dream before she has a chance to relish it. When I'm not writing and working, I enjoy being active, traveling, pre-pandemic, learning languages, and spending too much time on YouTube. Thank you for your consideration. Leela. Thank you so much, Leela. And this always gets me. It seems to be an American thing versus British English. Addicting versus addictive. Carly and Cece, what, which one do you guys prefer? What a question for 11 in the morning. Which one do I prefer? <laughs> Would you say something is addicting or something is addictive? I think I say both. I, think it's, I don't know. Carly? I feel like it's more American to say addictive and more British to say addicting. Is that correct? That's no, it seems to be the other way around. It seems to be American say addicting and British say addictive. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, Leela, sorry about that. Cece, why don't you let us know what you thought of Leela's query letter? So this is a very well-written query letter. Like, Leela, such a good job. I remember reading it and being like, I have to give this person notes. Like, this is going to be tough. I definitely have, like, notes on the story because of the setup. Like, she is 15. Does she need to be this young? But even this reaction is, if it's intentional, a good thing. Because that is obviously at the heart of your story, right? So if I didn't have this reaction, then there might be something wrong with the way you framed it. But I did. I was like, really? Does she need? I, I seriously wrote this. I was like, does she need to be so young? I, I was thinking in terms of like challenges to the market, but also just in terms of like my own heart, you know, like I'm going to have to read about this. Like it's tough. And then I like dark, as you know, but the query letter itself is very, very, very good. Like if I had to try to find a way to make it even better in the plot paragraph, the part where as her success grows, so does Natalie's worries about her image you know, siding with kid is one thing or siding with her mom. And part of me wishes there was a clear external conflict, a plot point to match the interiority. She's right now looking at, you know, I either go down this road or this road. And I wonder if there could be an exterior plot point to match that, that might go a long way in propelling the story forward and also in making sure that the emotionality is tied to the plot. So, I mean, I have no idea what the story is because all I read is five pages, but, you know, she could be choosing between taking a part in a, in a movie or a part in a TV show and they will position her totally different in the market. I, and again, I have no idea what it would actually be but that I feel could elevate this even more and then I guess I do have a question for you about this whole she's 15 and she's gonna be involved in a criminal let's face it relationship not on her side criminal but on his side criminal the age of consent in California I believe is 18 she is 15 we're not getting in the query letter and I'm wondering if this is intentional I'm not saying this is good or bad it's not my job to tell you that we're not getting in the query letter that she is aware that this man is committing a crime is that intentional does she know that yeah, so I think that she knows that it's wrong, but she doesn't really view it as a crime. I think she knows that it's illegal because he kind of puts this pressure on her that, you know, they have to keep this secret. So she is aware of that. But she also feels like, you know, it's Hollywood. There's inappropriate relationships all the time here. It isn't that big of a deal. And that is a source of conflict with the relationship between her and Kit. I didn't know that that would be something to include in the query because I think I did want to get across that like she's kind of a little bit jaded or naive to things. So maybe she doesn't see it as serious as it is. And that goes into why the relationship is so inappropriate because she is so naive and doesn't really see it for what it is. But I definitely think that could be a good thing to add is that... I, I don't think you should. I don't think you should. I was asking you only because there isn't a mention of him asking to keep it a secret or the fact that she feels pressured. And so I didn't know whether this was even addressed. And so I had to ask. But I know I don't think that I think your instincts were right. You don't think you don't have to right? like it's so obvious. 
she's 15. Of course she knows. Whether she knows it, you know, and what layer of her consciousness she knows that is up to the pages, not up to the query letter. I would add in the pressure though, like he is putting pressure on her to keep it a secret, stuff like that. Because I think that's an essential part of the story too, right? Like having to to keep that relationship a secret. And I appreciate that that is the stereotypical Hollywood life. Inappropriate stuff happens all the time and criminal stuff happens all the time. And we are supposed to think that it's normal. And, you know, I always say this, the darkest novel I have ever read is Dark Horses by Susan something. I forget the last name. It's, I think the character's 15 too, but the sexual relationship there's with her dad like it's incest that's how awful it is the only part i had to skip is when the horse got hurt jasper baby jasper so beautiful because that was really heartbreaking and reading that novel took the biggest toll in me of any novel i've ever read in my life it was still very well done and these things happen in the real world and so i don't think that we shouldn't have novels i'm very against this idea of you know we shouldn't promote these stories it's not about promoting it's about if this happened in the real world and you do it right that's okay I just do think that the secret needs to be layered in there. That's that's my only note for you. Any questions for me or Carly? What did you think, Carly? I'm very curious to know what your what your light side of the force heart thinks about this. Yeah, I know. I always say I have slightly lighter tastes than Cece. My taste kind of really goes up and down in terms of like when I'm in the mood for dark. I can't remember if I said this on the podcast before, but so my dark Vanessa, that book ended up getting like ten agent offers. I offered on that book. I was absolutely obsessed with that book. I read the draft submission. I was actually the first agent to offer on it. I was so obsessed with that novel. Still am to this day. It's a phenomenal book if you guys haven't read it. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal book. And so when I offered on that manuscript, what I was thinking, even though it's very dark, right, discusses some really dark material, it did it in such a way that was so elevated, so eloquent, so thoughtful, so challenging to the reader that that book as 10 other agents believed and it got amazing accolades and it was bestseller like it deserves it all right it challenged us to our core right and that's what Cece's getting at it's like when books are so smart and well done that they challenge us you know it's, it's really well done I think of that movie 13 that came out maybe like 15 years ago that was a very challenging film yeah and so those are 13 year olds right and you're like holy hell that is what some people go through right and, and that's a that's an experience that deserves to be documented in art and literature so those are my feelings on darkness Carly it's the first time you told us like we knew Bianca and I knew but it's the first time you're sharing with the podcast so yeah there you go agents love books and fall in love with them and, and don't get and them then we and get it's rejected tragic. it's really heartbreaking <laughs> we do we do but anyway everybody please if you haven't read that book go buy that book I'm a lifelong fan so Leela do you have questions for Cece and Carly based on that feedback yeah so also of course love Mark Doc Vanessa and Dark Horses as well and you know I did want to comment on Cece when you mentioned about like you know there's kind of a discussion of whether you're promoting these kind of issues or like glamorizing it and that's definitely something I really focused on while writing the book and even while editing it is that there are some graphic scenes and some very difficult scenes and uh, you know I didn't want it to seem gratuitous or just like for the sake of shock value so that's definitely something I'm taking into consideration going forward with this novel and as far as like does she have to to be that young. I did want her to be young because I, I did want people to feel really uncomfortable with it. And also just because I knew with the timeline of the story, I knew what age I wanted her to end up being at the end of the novel. And I just thought that 15 was a, a good age for that. And I also just feel like it's like 
at the cusp of not adulthood, but I feel like womanhood maybe for a lot of young girls where they feel a lot older in some cases than they are. They may start to look like they're a little bit older. So I definitely wanted to pick an age that, you know, didn't give people like an easy answer because I felt like if I made her 17, then people would be like, oh, well, she's almost legal. It's not that big of a deal. So I did want to, you know, kind of push the boundaries a little bit as far as her age. So I thought 15 would be a good point or a good starting point for her age. One thing I had a question on that you guys didn't mention, but I was just curious about because I didn't notice this until I was practicing for this podcast and reading it aloud. In the query, there was the part about Dana, her mom, selling the house and telling her that, you know, she's investing the remaining money in her career. I noticed that I didn't specify, there were a lot of pronouns and I wondered if there was any pronoun confusion in that sentence because there were a lot of she's and hers and I wasn't sure if you were confused about whether that's for Dana or for Natalie. So for example, when Dana informs her that she sold their Florida home and is investing the remaining money into Natalie's career, she recognizes failure as an option. I just wanted to know if there was any confusion there as far as like who I was referring to. For me, there wasn't, but I still think that it's a great idea to edit it to avoid you know, any potential confusion. I read this when I was choosing it for the podcast and I read this, you know, last night when I was preparing and I, I didn't feel any confusion whatsoever. And I am often confused as our listeners know. Okay. So will you give our listeners an overview of what's in those opening pages before we hear TC's feedback on them? Leela? So in the opening pages, Natalie and her mom, they are walking toward the, or they are on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and they have a specific star in mind, Marilyn Monroe, that they're looking to see Natalie even dressed up like her, her idol. That's one of the people she is very inspired by. And there she's taken aback by all of the new things about LA, like the glamour, but also some of the darker things. When the story starts, she almost bumps into a man who's a drug addict and is sticking a needle into his vein, and they see like homeless people on the street and it's just very crowded. She's a little bit out of her element. And also you get a little bit of insight into her and Dana's dynamic as well. Because, you know, her mom is like telling her to focus on what they're doing, but Natalie's distracted by Ben catcalling her. And you get a, a sense that Natalie's mom is very, I guess, aggressive and is very forceful and has a stake in this, you know, in Natalie's success as well. Yeah. And then they end the, it just ends the scene with her taking the picture by the star and, you know, showing her determination for where she hopes to go for her career as she continues on in LA. Wonderful. Thank you. Cece, so what was your take on those opening pages? I want to start with writing stuff. And then I'm going to talk to you about character. So in terms of writing, you have vis-a-vis being used in the first sentence, literally, meaning face-to-face. Don't do that. It's the first line. It's typically used in formal, not formal, but I guess like businessy, whatever. Like I want to try to sound smart jargon as in relation to. I know that vis-a-vis means literally face-to-face. Vis means face in French. So, but I would not. Don't do that. Musicians busking on the street. It's like bordering on a pleonasm. Like busking means the act of playing music. So just like amateurs busking on the street. Like you already have the word amateur. The CIA escorting the president. It's the secret service that escorts the president. If she's getting that wrong on purpose, then we need to know that it's on purpose because she's, you know, like a 15-year-old and she's getting it confused. The name-splaining with Natalie's mom, like Natalie's mom, Dana, in one paragraph. And then in the next paragraph, she is referred to as mom, capital M, like a proper name. And then the next paragraph, she's referred to as Dana. Pick one. I think mom, capital M, that's my vote, but totally your call. When she sees the Ripley's, believe it or not, wouldn't it remind her of the Orlando one? Because they have one. I forget the name of the street. But then I think that that's something that would ground her for Orlando persona. Two-tiered tour bus. 
I mean, I get that I have awful diction, but I would just do like double decker or something like that. So these are just examples of things that I think you can use to polish. Not trying to pick on you, I promise. It's just that I, this is the value I can hopefully offer just to be like, try to edit these things because I think it would go a long way into making the readability flow better. So, okay, character. This is going to be the difficult note. And I mean difficult for me because I'm trying to figure out what it is that's not working. <sighs> Leela, I'm going to be honest. Feels like the person who wrote this was never a 15-year-old girl. But why? My, in, in playing psychologist that I like to do, I think that it's because you're keeping us at arm's length and you're not really going there. Almost like you're almost afraid of your own work, you know? But that is none of my business. I will shut up now about why I think you're doing this. So there's something about her inner life that's not working. On one hand, she seems totally oblivious to the highly problematic nature of what's going on with her mom essentially pimping her out for pictures. On the other hand, she understands that what the men are doing, the heckling and stuff, is wrong. She says this. And then I kept seeing this strange, I don't see her as a real person feeling. I kept having that feeling in various moments. So for example, she is shocked that LA is so, I guess, dirty or whatever. She watches TV. She knows. You know, like, especially if she's so obsessed with Hollywood. I don't know, Jimmy Kimmel or something. I don't know what she would watch and she would know that there are so many strange characters outside. I don't think that she would be this sheltered. And if she is this sheltered, then the whole heckling comment, it felt like she wasn't a fully fleshed out character. Like, at times she felt like she knew what she was talking about and at times she felt totally sheltered and naive. And I understand that in many ways we are a contradiction, but the contradiction wasn't working. And I kept thinking, how can we fix this? I'm happy to elaborate if I'm not diagnosing this in a way that's clear to you. And obviously, this is just my opinion. But assuming it is, I kept thinking, how can we fix this? One, first person might help. Because right now, I think you want this to be third person close, but I don't feel like it is. It's almost like someone is telling me the story of Natalie as opposed to Natalie telling me her story. So maybe... Before you continue this, Isi, can we ask Leela, why did you choose the point of view that you did? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, the point of view has been a really big challenge for me, like even from starting this novel. And I've also had comments that, yeah, the point of view didn't seem very consistent, even with using mom versus her mom. And I kept going back and forth because I don't know if I would have gotten repetitive to just always said mom, 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 or her mom, her mom all the time. So I definitely need to flesh that out. But actually... As far as first person versus third, when I originally first started drafting this, I did start the first chapter in first person, but it just didn't feel right to me. And also in third person just felt a lot better. But then also as I was kind of trying to think of like where I would place this, and I do definitely think it's an adult novel because of themes and a lot of the scenes, I felt like first person would make it sound too YA, especially with her being 15. So I thought to kind of hopefully <laughs> eliminate that problem, a third person point of view would fit better. It's a fair concern. You can make third work. You just have to get more in her head. I think it's really important. Like, I do not feel like I'm in her head at all. And she's the point of view that I'm getting, right? Like, so I'm supposed to. Can I hop in there and just offer some advice? So Leela, where sometimes this helps is if you write it in first person, really make it super close, like in first person, and then you rewrite it in third because once you've written something really close in first person afterwards you're pretty much just changing names and pronouns but then it still feels super super close because you've already done it in first person so my advice to you is to do that with the first chapter you know completely rewrite it in the first and then change the pronouns move it back to third and see how much closer that gets you to the character okay Carry on, CC. One thing I love about the third person is that it's much easier to access someone's unconscious using the third person. Again, you can absolutely do that and there are advantages. Just, yeah. So another idea I had is 
we could add a looking back vibe here. Like she could be telling the story from when she's, I don't know, 25. And that could be intentional and written into the pages in a very clear way. And that might also help me because I, I'll understand why she sounds at, at times older and at times younger. And another thing that I think would really help. So for example, with the whole Marilyn Monroe star thing, like she wanted to change her name, right? And her mom wins the argument. But how come she never said, but Marilyn Monroe changed her name? She was Norma Jean. I just think that she would know these things. Or, or, and because and, everyone does. And actually to even further my own point, can maybe Marilyn be her mom's idol and she have some other idol, like an obscure star or not obscure because she'll have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, but someone who's not as well known. I just felt that everything was just so, I don't want to use the word generic because it sounds unfair because it feels unfair to me. Generic is, she's just very cookie cutter, you know, like very cookie cutter about like why she wants to do this. And I don't know, I don't want her to be cookie cutter. I want her to have more personality and more specificity and more details. I wanted her to... Even when she's taking the picture and she's uncomfortable, because in the query letter, you mentioned that she never fit into school. I want her to be thinking about like how jealous the kids at school are going to be, you know, when they see the picture. I want her to, when she mentions that her ability to always live another life is a flaw, an asset and a flaw, I want to know why it's a flaw. Who has made her feel like it's a flaw? I just want more emotionality and more details in a way that's not expected. Like I would expect a 15-year-old who wants to be an actress to be enamored with Marilyn Monroe. I just wanted something different. Because one of the ways that we connect with a character in a really dark story, and you must connect with characters in all stories, but especially dark ones, is by making them very, very human. And one way to make someone very, very human is to make them incredibly unique. You know, just all these little quirks and traits that work in your favor, these details. And I just think this is very expected. So does it, is this making sense? Totally. I think also maybe a huge issue for me is I definitely wanted her to be a little bit contradictory because I knew a lot of girls like Natalie and maybe I was one in a way as well in which it was so clear to probably older people that they were so immature and naive, but they themselves felt like they were so mature, like that they were older, that they were different, that they had an old soul maybe. And I kind of wanted to layer both of those ideas in, but I do think maybe neither were clear enough and maybe that's what some of the the genericness is coming from. It's because... No, that actually makes a lot of mm. sense what you're saying. So I guess when, especially like when it came to her idolizing Marilyn, one, just because I love Marilyn Monroe, like her as an icon, I just find her very fascinating. So I wanted to tie that in. But I also just wanted her to have someone that was older and also very sexualized to be her idol. So that kind of plays into why she fell prey to a guy like Kit later on and why she accepted some things in her career that happens later on. But then again, I wanted it to be clear to other people reading it, like adults reading this story. Oh no, like this girl is definitely not as mature as she thinks she is because she, you know, gets very rattled by certain things or she sees people with rose colored lenses. Like she has this very innocent way of viewing people in a very predatory industry. And I wanted to kind of have both of those layers, but maybe I need to do a better job and making sure that those layers are present. Okay. I love what you just said right now because it explains so much. This is why it's so great to talk to the author. Okay. About the Marilyn point, you're right. You're right. Of course she would love Marilyn. So then can we make what she loves about Marilyn be different from what her mom loves about Marilyn? And her thing be more like research focus and craft and her mom be more about the, I wear Chanel number five to sleep and nothing else or whatever. Because you're right. It's a good parallel. And then about your first point, I get it. You wanted to show the contradiction because that is exactly what being 15 is. You look like a woman. If you are just walking down the street, for many people, they might assume you're 20 and you're still a child, right? And that is a very honestly messed up part of being 15. 
So, so yes, let, let us honor that. I think it might help to just do one to start, like just focus on being in her head. Don't worry about showing the contradictions. Let the reader do that part, the connecting of the dots for now, at least focus on one thing, because I think that you might be trying to skip some steps, which shows that you will understand storytelling. What you just said, I wanted the reader and that was perfect. I just wonder if you're like, I wanted to do this step, but first you have to do like step one and two and three. Is this making sense? Totally makes sense. Yeah, I definitely, the first chapter, it has always been essentially the same scene, but it definitely has taken a lot of different forms. Like I've had to rewrite it a couple of different times and I've always felt like that there was something missing, like a little bit missing, like, I don't know, a certain layer of emotionality missing from it. So definitely makes a lot of sense and definitely something to take note of. Thank you for coming on and thank you for letting me critique this and talk about it, even though I'm not even sure what wasn't working in the beginning. You were so patient with me while I was trying to figure this out. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. They're super helpful. So for our listeners, Leela mentioned the matchmaking that I did last year. I'm getting a ton of people who are going back and listening to our backlist of episodes and are reaching out and asking me to do the matchmaking again for them. I have not recovered from the first round of matchmaking. (laughs) That was 900 people that I matched. Some were excellent matches and some I had people mailing me for weeks to complain about various things. So I'm still going for therapy about that. But I am asking you if you are looking for a writing group or beta readers, tweet me or tweet the podcast using the hashtag writing group matchup T Snotio, the acronym for the podcast. And I will retweet that. And if you search that hashtag, you can find other writing group and beta reader friends. Right, let's go to today's guest. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or The interiority here needs work, and that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is 
different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi everyone, welcome to today's guest segment. Today's guest previously worked as the publicity director of Penguin Books Canada. Prior to Penguin, she worked in public relations. She's a graduate of the Media, Information and Technoculture program at Western University. She lives in Toronto where she and her partner are raising their two young children. The Push is her first novel. It's my pleasure to welcome Ashley Audrain. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bianca. Thank you so much for having me. As you know, I'm a huge fan of this podcast. I listen to every episode and honestly learn something every single time that helps me practically with my writing from just listening to Carly and Cece's critique. It's invaluable tool for me. So that, thank you. That's amazing because we, we did put this together aimed at, at emerging writers, but it's so wonderful to know that it's helping establish extremely mm. successful writers as well. And you hear us talking about you and the push all the time. We don't mention you because we know you listening to the podcast. We do just happen to mention it. And then it's always, I think, nice for you to hear your name while you're walking or doing whatever it is you do while listening. Oh, it is. Thank you. It always is. Thank you very much. Right. Now, for our listeners, today we have a special treat. I thought I would mix things up a bit. Now, if you listen to the podcast regularly, you will know that I am a huge huge fan of bookstagrammers. This is something you need to know as an author going forward, that without bookstagrammers who are enthusiastic readers, without book clubs, without booksellers and librarians, your book does not get into the hand of the reader that you hope will read the book. And so I love bookstagrammers. I love their passion for books and I love what they do for writers. And so today I thought I would invite one of my favorite bookstagrammers onto the podcast so that she could interview Ashley because she's a huge fan of Ashley's and she loved the push. So today it's my pleasure to welcome Femi Omatade, who is the host of the Book Alerts Book Club. You can find her on Instagram at, at the book alert and you want to follow her, I promise you, not just for all the bookish stuff, but because she's super, super stylish and she manages to pair all of her outfits with book covers as well, which is mind blowing to me because I'm such a schlub. Femi, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bianca. I'm actually blushing a little bit. Uh, thanks for the introduction and thank you for giving me this opportunity to be on your podcast. I love what you're doing with writers, with up and coming writers, with established writers as well. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Ashley, should we just get straight into it? I am fangirling. I'm trying to keep calm because I am a huge fan of The Push. I've recommended it to a lot of people and I know I'm not alone in my thoughts on The Push. A lot of people love it. It was nominated for so many book awards last year. So I'm definitely not alone in my thoughts. And I think for me, what made it stand out, because I read a lot of thrillers, I read a lot of mysteries, and a lot of it can be a bit predictable, a bit repetitive. A lot of them are trying to be the next Gone Girl. And Gone Girl is absolutely fantastic. One of my favorite books, but you can't always replicate that. 
But one thing about The Push is that it really wrote outside the lines of a traditional thriller. So if I were to summarise it, I would say that it's about motherhood, exploring whether a woman wants to become a mother, how to be a good mother when you don't have examples of role models of what a good mother is. And these kind of topics are not typically associated with thrillers. I think they're quite weighted. So could you tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind the story and why you chose these topics to be in a thriller? Yes. Oh, thanks. That's a great question. And first of all, I'm so excited to be talking to you, Femi, because just like Bianca, I love Bookstagram and the whole bookfluence community on social. And I feel like I really appreciate the support that you've given the push online and that others have too. But it really has changed the game of books. And it is, I think, the number one way people discover what to read next. And I feel like in general, I think the Bookstagram community should be paid. There's a lot of issues, I think, that publishers need to sort out with Bookstagram and with people like yourself who put in a lot of time and effort to create content to promote books. So thank you for that. And I know it's been a massive part of the success of the push. I feel like I owe so much to Bookstagram and to the whole social media community for giving momentum to the push. I have to say that first. But thank you for your great question. And yeah, I think that part of what inspired me to want to write about these topics, like you said, that haven't been written about in this way and thrillers is that I think it's that I didn't really set out necessarily to write a thriller. And I think that's sort of how the book kind of ended up in the shape that it did. I really wanted to write about motherhood. And that was because I'd always had a really strong curiosity about motherhood, not from a I can't wait to be a mother perspective, but more from a why do women do it? Why do women choose to become mothers? And what happens when it doesn't go? as they hoped. And then when I became a mother myself, I had an unusual experience because my son was very sick. When he was two weeks old, he became quite ill. And that sort of put us on a very stressful, difficult, challenging path in kind of those early days of motherhood. And while I didn't want to write about that per se, and thankfully, I had a very different experience than my main character, Blythe, did. I wanted to explore that darker side of motherhood. And I wanted to look at the fears surrounding motherhood and the anxiety surrounding becoming a mother, because I knew that that was such a common thing and such a common experience. And yet it still was so taboo and still not really spoken about at all. And so that's, I think, where my mind was as a writer, wanting to explore one woman's journey kind of through that. And I think because of the nature of that darker side of motherhood, it sort of naturally just turned into this thriller type of a novel. And no doubt, I think at that time, I was influenced by what was really happening in the publishing world then. I worked in publishing, Gone Girl was out, then also Girl on a Train was just coming out. And there, there was this moment, I think, for this unreliable female narrator and fiction like that written by women was really happening around that time, which when I started writing this, it was 2015. And so I think all of that kind of played into what made the push what it is. But I think I've always gravitated more naturally towards that darker side of storytelling and the uncomfortableness. I think I'm always going to be interested in writing about the uncomfortable, going places that we don't often go or that we don't read about often. And so I just went for it <laughs> with this book, I think. Yeah. And we're happy that you did. Thank you. Were you looking at any other genre or was it always going to be a mystery thriller? Because 
I would say it's a dark character study with thriller elements. I wouldn't say it's necessarily a typical thriller. So were there any other genres that you were looking at? I think you're right in that description. I really do. One of my publishers had called it sort of more emotional suspense. And I think that emotion comes from from exactly what you're saying. I wanted it to be a little more character driven, for sure. As a reader, I gravitate towards more character driven books. I, I probably read a little more on the literary side than the commercial side normally, although I think that those lines are always blurred now. And that's what makes a lot of these books so great right now. I wasn't really thinking about genre at that point. I think I was just thinking about what is the story I want to tell. And I wasn't thinking so much about exactly where it would fit. Although I think a lot of that comes in later. I think later in the publishing process, you're sort of forced to decide where that book fits (laughs) for reasons that you talk about on the show, Bianca, all the time, which is when you start pitching agents and you have to think about how you're marketing it, then you start to kind of need to have more of a mind that way. But I think especially when you're writing your debut novel, or at least in my case, like I didn't really know what I was doing. I had always wanted to write a book and I had dreamed of being a published author and I was immersed in that world. But I sort of just had this hunch that none of that was ever going to happen unless I just sat down and told the story I really wanted to tell. And I think that that's often my advice to writers, like emerging writers is you will get the best book if you write the thing that you are obsessed with. The story that is burning in you that you can't stop thinking about that is on your mind all the time. Truly the thing that is your obsession, I think is what is going to make the best story. That is where I think your best, most creative work comes from. And so I think especially because I had started writing when my son was six months old, and we've been through a lot and motherhood was tough. I really needed to just protect this writing space for myself. And so I didn't talk about what I was writing to anybody. I didn't tell anyone I was doing this, except for my partner. And I would just go to the coffee shop down the street and just head down and just write for as many hours as I could get at a time. And so it had this sort of feverish quality to it, I think, when I was writing, because I was always on the clock. There was always a time limit and all of that. And so I think all that contributed to what the push became as well, just that sort of context that I was writing it in. So I just heard you say that you get the best books when you write something that's close to your heart that you're very passionate about. So motherhood was the central theme of this. And as a mother yourself, did you find it particularly triggering writing about these topics? Because thankfully, you didn't have the experience of life. But I mean, I'm not a mum yet, but I'm thinking of some of the mums that I know, some of the parents that I know, if they were to see their child doing something unusual, I can't Mm. imagine them being so vulnerable about it, talking about it. And I think it would be a very difficult conversation to have. So as you were writing this, was it triggering? And also, would you have any advice for a writer if they were to write something that is emotionally impacting on themselves? Maybe they had something that happened in their childhood and they really Mm. want to talk about it, but it is quite difficult to put onto paper. What kind of self-care tips do you have for a writer? Oh, great question. Yeah, I didn't find it difficult really to go to those very dark places. And I mean, I know a lot of people find that surprising or they assume that it would have been really hard to be writing about things happening to children or children being a certain way or this traumatic experience when I had my own toddler baby at home who was the same age as as the character I was writing. But I was really able to separate that. I think part of it, honestly, was there was this real distinction between where I could go when I was sitting down at the computer and who I was at home or what kind of mother I was or how my child was. I was just kind of able to make that distinction. Actually, I once heard, I can't remember 
who it was, but something a very accomplished writer had once said in an interview, something along the lines of that you shouldn't treat writing as therapy, that writing is not your therapy. And I actually really disagree with that. I think that, you know, while I wouldn't call writing therapy necessarily for me, I think it can be a very cathartic experience to face the things that you fear most on the page. At least for me, that's where I'm able to go deeper, you know, really kind of putting yourself in the shoes of a character and how they would feel and how they would react. And essentially, I think that's the experience of writing, right, is being as empathetic as you possibly can to this character that you're creating. And that was a lot of I, I wanted to face the the most terrifying things I could think of in motherhood, which a lot of are, are in this book, obviously. It almost gave those scary things less power in my life. Like to me, it sort of took away some of that power because I was writing so vividly and deep in such detail about them. So I think that a lot of that can be used to a writer's advantage if they're comfortable with that and if that's something that they feel they can explore. Now, I'm not a very vulnerable person, I wouldn't say, in in my real life. I'm not you know, talk through everything. I don't share a lot. I tend to sort of hold things close to my chest for whatever reason. I've sort of always been that way. But to me, the interesting place to go there is on the page. And so I don't know if that's common of other writers or not. Bianca, is, is it common of other writers? For me, it certainly rings true. I'm exactly the same as, mm. as Ashley. I much more stoic in real life. I don't share my problems. I'm not the vulnerable person in my friendship group, but certainly go there on the page. So maybe writing isn't therapy, but it sure as damn hell can be therapeutic. So there we go. Agreed. As a reader, because I'm not a writer, but as a reader, reading a book is escapism. So I guess maybe it's not therapy, but it is therapeutic, just like Bianca, you said. So Ashley, you said that you're not a vulnerable person and not many people knew that you were actually writing this book. So when people in your circle, your friends, your family, when they read the book, I'm assuming that people, your friends and family did read the book, were they surprised? Um, what were their reactions to it? I think they were. I think some people were. My partner always knew what the book was about. And I had shared quite a bit with him. And he'd helped me a lot as I was writing kind of versions and feedback and helping me with some revisions. So not so much him, but certainly I think my mother was surprised. Um, because I didn't, I mean, they knew I was writing because I often needed her help with childcare. So I sort of had to tell her that, you know, I, I need your help to watch my son for a few hours while I'm writing or whatever. But I, I didn't share a lot about where I was at in that process with anybody because I think for the reasons I mentioned but also for me there feels like a certain creative advantage to not talking a lot about my work when I'm in the middle of it and I for some reason it seems to hold more power and be more alive inside of me and be more exciting and have a different energy if it's just in my head and I am not speaking about it and I'm finding that with my second book too I mean I feel like that is just my process until I get to a certain point where I need help and then I find a lot of value in trying to talk through a problem solving part of it. But I think when I'm in that initial creative stage, I don't talk about it so much. So yeah, so nobody really knew what it was about. And then when the agent happened and the book deal happened and things were all happening quickly, which was a really exciting time, I then, of course, shared the news with my family and they were so excited. I have two younger sisters and my mom and dad, you know, they were all so supportive. And then they sort of sat back and said, oh, it's so exciting. And so tell us what the book's about. And then so when I had to tell my poor mother that it's about this multi-generations of women who are terrible mothers and this trauma and everything, I think she was a bit like, how could you possibly write about that? Where would you come up with that? And what experience would you possibly base that on? So it was kind of funny. And I do, I do, because <laughs> she is such a wonderful mother. And I do try to make a point of saying at a lot of my events and interviews that it is not based on her 
or her mother for that matter. I think my friends, some of them I think were probably surprised, but I think also it's created a lot of good conversation with them. And yeah, and I, and I think that's part of what has been a real joy about this book is hearing about the kind of conversations that it started among women, among friends, whether they have children or not, or what their decision about that is. I've heard from a lot of women who don't have children, either because they can't or they don't want to, and have said that a lot of what's in this book has kind of validated that decision for them in some way about how they have felt or the experience they had with their own mother. And that's been really a wonderful thing as a writer, a wonderful feedback to get as a writer and has been really meaningful. So it's not based on you, your mother or your grandmother. <laughs> and okay. Nobody. All fiction. Absolutely or, or no one. Poor, all fiction. Or I should say, or my poor children. I should say. Okay. <laughs> somebody, I was doing a book club chat once and one woman said to me, like, what are you going to tell your daughter one day? <laughs> Well, I'm going to tell her it's a book just like the books on her shelf in her bedroom, on her bookshelf in her bedroom. It's all just fiction. So, yeah. So it's interesting that you clarify that it's not based on your mother or your grandmother, because most of the story is told from Blythe's perspective and the second person narrative. It's like a post-mortem examination of her relationship because it's told to Fox, her husband. And apart from Blythe, we do hear a little bit from her mother and her grandmother, but it's mainly from Blythe's perspective. Was it always your idea for her to be the focal points and not to hear anyone else's point of view? Because I'm not going to say too much, but Fox really is a piece of work. I cannot stand him. Has to be one of the worst book husbands I've ever come across. Yeah, cannot stand him. But I was thinking, am I being a bit harsh? Because we didn't really get to hear his side of things. Would I have changed my point of view if I heard his story? Did you debate perhaps changing the perspective of the story? I love that. One of the worst book husbands. I think you're probably right. Really? That's yeah. true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> good question. I feel like there's nothing redeemable about Fox as a character, as a husband. He is a very difficult character and he is certainly meant to be that frustrating, I think. But I think you are absolutely right. I feel the same way. I think that we don't hear Fox's perspective. That's a great observation, I think, of kind of the dynamic in the book and that we are getting just her perspective. It is very tightly her perspective about the experience of their marriage and the experience of their parenthood together. And there is always another side and we just don't get that side. And so I think that's always hopefully in the back of the mind of the reader, which I think contributes to that questioning that they might have as they read about what is the truth, what is Blythe's truth, and how we we sort of remain, or a reader hopefully kind of remains in that gray space as they are reading. When I sat down to start writing the book and I didn't have a plan, I had a rough plan, but I am very much sort of more of a pantser sort of kind of writer. When I started writing, that voice from Blythe just came to me right away. And it was very clear and alive. And I sort of just always knew what that voice was going to be. And so when I started writing it that way, I think it was because I wanted to feel very intimately inside of their marriage, but from her perspective. And it just started addressing Fox, her husband, as you. And it sort of just turned into this hybrid kind of second person voice. And I just kind of rolled that way. And I kind of just went with it because I think I was looking for that real intimate perspective. I honestly think that if I had have had any kind of guidance or help in this book at the beginning, 
I probably would have changed that. And as I got further, I thought, okay, once I realized what I was doing, I thought somebody is going to try to convince me out of this at some point, because it is a challenge, I think, as a writer to do. And I think it can be challenging for a reader to be in that perspective. Sometimes I know you've talked about that quite a bit, Bianca on the show with Carly and Cece about perspective and which perspective to write in. So yeah, I just sort of went with it. And then I realized as I was going that we were only ever going to get that tight point of view, because at times, I think I thought about kind of trying to give a different perspective, whether that was changing the voice so that we could hear from Fox or that we could hear from even Violet. But it just felt off course to me. I really wanted to stay true to Blythe in this. I wanted this just to be her story, one woman's side of the story. And I didn't really entertain it that much. I just sort of went for it. (laughs) So can I stick with my thought that Fox is just a terrible husband. And yeah. I'm not going to... yeah. Okay, I'm going to stick with that then. <laughs> <laughs> so since we've spoken about how the story was put together in terms of your idea and how you're passionate about motherhood, I was told that it's going to be adapted into a TV or a film. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? So when it was picked up by a publisher, were there always whispers that Hollywood would be calling? Because as a reader, I don't really know too much about book-to-screen adaptations. Mm. I see it all the time, but I don't know much about the background. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. So, I mean, I didn't really know how any of this worked as well until it until it was all happening. It was all very new. But yeah, so what happened in my case was publishers had the manuscript. It sold in the UK first and I think then Canada and then the US. And then the international rights team at the agency was working on the other book deals, which was all very exciting. And I guess in the background of that was Scout had had the book. So Scouts are sort of these people in the industry who will help to kind of get the manuscript into the hands of people who might want to option it on the screen side. And so pretty quickly, those calls kind of came through, which was really exciting. And basically how it works is your agent just sort of lines up calls with these producers who are interested in optioning for screen, whether it's for TV or film, and then you kind of go through the process of chatting with them and hearing what their vision would be and what they have in mind for it. And that was all very strange new territory because I didn't even know the questions to ask. Like I just was sort of, it was very, you're sort of flying by the seat of your pants on those calls and just trying to get a feel with the help of your agent for what would be a good fit. Some, I think people would rather wait and sell the options later. I mean, there's all kinds of, I guess, strategies that you could take there, but I we just sort of went for it. Well, the interest was there. And I spoke with somebody from the UK, David Heyman is his name. He's a producer who did all the Harry Potter films and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and a movie I really love, Marriage Story. I really had a great connection with that team. And I really loved kind of the vision of what they had for what the push could be on screen. And so after talking to a lot of people, he was actually the first person I talked to. And then we talked to others. And then I went kind of back to him and I was able to meet with him and his team in London at the time. This was before the world shut down. And so that was really lovely. And so yeah, the plan is to turn it into a limited television series. And it seems to be rolling along, which is really exciting. And hopefully there'll be some news on it soon that can be announced. But yeah, it's, it's exciting. Yeah. And I think with these things, you sort you, know, you cross your fingers and hope that it happens in this crazy world. Options can happen, you know, turn out and they can not and it's Hollywood and who knows. But uh, fingers crossed. Yeah. Exciting. Well, I'm excited to see how that plays out on the screen, particularly the ending, because the ending, I was oh, like, whoa, yeah. okay. Yeah, that I didn't see it coming. So yeah, so congratulations on that. That's huge news. 
Thank you very much. I'm so, so grateful for that all. Yes, thank you. As one of those women who decided not to have children, Between the Push and We Need to Talk About Kevin, those two mm. books really validated for me that I've potentially made <laughs> the right decision. So thank you for that, Ashley. Oh, my pleasure. So huge thank you to Femi. That was an excellent, excellent interview. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. It was so lovely to listen to the both of you speaking because normally it's my brain whirring over with the next question and I could just relax and enjoy this, which was wonderful. Oh. Femi, thank you so much. You, the, your questions were brilliant. It was so nice chatting with you. I could have chat with you for hours. So thank you so much for doing this today. Oh, thank you, Ashley. I could have spoken to you for ages as well. And again, Bianca, thank you so much. Honestly, I do appreciate this opportunity. It's, it's a big thing for me. So thank you. Absolutely. And you've knocked it out of the park. For our listeners, we have all of the books that we discuss on the podcast up on our affiliate page at bookshop.org. Ashley's paperback is now out. So if you missed it in hardcover, now's the time to grab it on paperback. If you're in the US and you buy via that affiliate link on bookshop.org, you help support the podcast, you support the author, and you support an independent bookstore, which is always a win-win. So look out for that. Thank you so much to you both. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.